0: Thanks, Bethany. Uh, my name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here at Rescom. Glad that you could be here on this Sunday as we worship our risen Savior. He is risen. Amen. I love those words as we declare uh, what we should every Sunday, that he is our risen Savior. It's crazy to think last Easter, it was just less than 10 of us here in this sanctuary uh, as we worshiped virtually online. And today we get to celebrate uh, first at our 9 o'clock service, here at our 1045, and then afterwards at our luncheon for those that can join us. Um, but if, you're, if you've been sticking around with us for some time, we've been looking at these questions that Jesus asked over these last seven weeks. On Friday, on Good Friday, we, asked, we looked at the question Jesus asked his own father, why have you forsaken me? And we ended that evening, as Pastor John reminded us, with really a solemn note. Jesus is buried. And as he's buried and in that darkness, we left this room in silence. But this morning, this Sunday morning, on the first day of the week, Jesus is risen from the dead. And we get to celebrate that. And Jesus didn't only ask questions before his death and resurrection, but he asks questions even afterward. And we look at this question today, what are you discussing? Now, I've shortened it because the question Jesus actually asks us or asks these disciples is, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? So let's look at that. But before we do, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. For you have risen from the dead and that we get to celebrate not people of sadness and sorrow as we read here of these two disciples, but one of joy and hope. So help us to see that. Open up our eyes like these disciples so that we might be able to revel in the joy that comes on Easter. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What sticks out to me about this story is that there is this one road that Cleopas and the disciple walk. And yet this same road that they walk on, they experience two different journeys. Bethany helped us see that. The first road, as they head home to Emmaus, is one filled with sadness, resignation, hopelessness. But the second Journey on the way back to Jerusalem on that Easter morning, or Easter evening actually, is one filled with hope, is one filled with excitement, is one filled with joy. Why? Why the same road and yet two different experiences? Well, we know. It's because they have met the risen Savior, Jesus, on the seven-mile road. And everything changes for them because they have met the resurrected one. And that's what I want us to look at briefly this morning, to be able to experience these two different roads that Cleopas and his companion experience. One being the road of sorrow, and the second being the road of hope. Now first we have to look here at the road of sorrow. Cleopas and this other person who is not named, on this Easter morning, are walking from Jerusalem back home. Now, some people think that Cleopas is the one mentioned in John, and if that's so, then that would actually be, the other disciple would actually be Mary, his wife. Now, we don't know that, and it doesn't matter because what matters is, is that these are two disciples of Jesus, and they are very sad, downcast, actually, in the NIV, and dejected. They are returning home after the Passover week in Jerusalem, after celebrating the festivities, but also the craziness of that week, right? Jesus was condemned. There was these trials, a sham, if I would argue. And then he's crucified on the cross along with two other criminals. He's buried. And then there's these these rumors that Mary and other women have gone to see Jesus in the tomb to grieve, and to prepare for him the spices, and yet the tomb is empty. Now all of this is happening, right, as they walk back the seven-mile road, which would take a few hours to do. And as they're walking, what do you do? You talk about this. Like on road trips, you talk with your wife, you talk with your kids, you talk with your friends about everything that's been going on, and this is front and center for them. And as they're talking, Jesus meets them on the road to Emmaus. Now they don't recognize who Jesus is. And we know that because we see that they were kept from recognizing him. Now for us, people of faith, we see that this is God, Jesus, himself, or the Holy Spirit himself, that is preventing them from seeing Jesus for who he is. But what we notice is that when Jesus asks this question that we're looking at, what are you discussing, we realize that they stop, dead in their tracks, and it describes them as being sad. NIV says they are downcast. But what we also know is that they are shocked that this man, who is Jesus, doesn't know everything that's happened. It's headline news. It's all over Twitterverse. It's on your notifications on your phone of everything that's happening in real time. And they're shocked that, they, that this man doesn't know what's happened. And what does Jesus ask? He asks the second question and says, what things? And this is Jesus' opportunity for them to express everything that they believe and for Jesus to be able to reveal himself as he is as we've been looking at this through this entire Lenten season and so these two disciples do that you don't know about Jesus of Nazareth and they talk about all of it being condemned to death being crucified being buried and then how on that morning as they're walking back that there's been all these rumors that Mary and the women have found an empty tomb now As they're sharing this, we realize why they are so downcast and sad and filled with resignation. In verse 21, the disciples say, We had hoped, we had hoped, but no longer, that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's why they were so sad. And I think it's important for us to consider, especially in our cultural moment, why this matters so much. We live in a world where we are walking down this Emmaus road where God is dead. The culture and our world says God has died. And as we think about these two disciples, it leaves them on this road to Emmaus filled with hopelessness, resignation, and sorrow. Much like this world, and especially our nation. I don't know if you've seen this SNL skit that was recently played, but it's Kate McKinnon, one of the SNL casts. And she plays this interviewer, and her question basically to every single person she interviews is, what still works? What still works? And so she interviews first um, this government or this uh, congressman, Marjorie Gre- or Green, from Georgia, And basically, after asking all these questions about the conspiracy theories and QAnon, she concludes government doesn't work. She then interviews and examines the stock market and interviews this investor for GameStop and asks him all these questions about, well, if the the GameStop stock is going up, but their value is low, is that the way it's supposed to work? And this gentleman's like, oh, I don't think so. And so she concludes again, well, the stock market doesn't work. Then she interviews the CEOs of Facebook and Twitter, and, and again she comes to the realization, well, social media doesn't work. She examines the vaccine rollout in its early stages, and she concludes to everybody watching, the vaccine rollout doesn't work. Then her final interviewer or interviewee is Tom Brady. He's supposed to win football games, and what does he do? He wins football games. He goes to the Super Bowl. What does he do? He wins Super Bowls. And what Kate McKinnon realizes and concludes is that Tom Brady is the only thing in America that works. <laughs> Tom Brady is the only thing that we can rely on. And John Egan actually reminded me of, a, of an interview with 60 Minutes back in 2015. When the interviewer asked Tom Brady, you have all the fame, you have all the success. Like, What's next? He's like, I don't know. What else is there to do? It's like, what else can I accomplish? And the interviewer asks, well, have you answered that question? And he says, I don't know. I have no idea. All I can do is just keep winning. And what we realize here is that as funny as that interview on SNL was, it was prophetic. They tapped into our cultural moment that when we act as if God is dead on the road that we walk on, then there is resignation. There is sadness. There's hopelessness. Much like Tom Brady. But what we also have to realize is if God is dead, we don't just subtract him from our worldview. We actually have to create another alternative story that will actually bring us meaning. That will actually convince us of fullness in life. And what is that? For Tom Brady, he's searching. He's won another one. He's won a few more. And yet, there's this resignation about what will actually bring us hope in this world. And especially over the last few years, we've realized that everything that we put our hopes in, education, politics, technology, whatever it is, your family, your children, relationships, it reveals themselves to be what they truly are, a fraud, that it doesn't actually work. And we are left in despair and hopelessness like Cleopas and his companion. Think about our identity. When God is dead, we have to define who I am. Who am I? No one can tell me who I am and what I'm about, what defines me, my values, my tastes, my preferences. But I need others to validate me, right? When you think about identity, you need a witness to be able to tell you that this is who you are. You need validation in your life. I need witnesses. And guess what provides that for us when God is dead? Social media. Social media has helped us with this. We perpetually express ourselves to the world in order to be validated by the world. And it's never enough. It's exhausting. And, it's eventually, and it eventually breaks people literally with anxiety and depression. And it leaves us with this resignation because the responsibility to create our own identity is too much to bear. Think about meaning. Humans can't live without meaning. But without the transcendence, without God, the natural world doesn't have any meaning. And so what do we have to do? If the world doesn't impose meaning for us, we have to impose meaning on the world. When you think of meaning as residing then just in our head, it loses its power and we're left feeling inadequate and impoverished. We're not satisfied. So we're left having to define what love and truth and all the different experiences we have means to ourselves. So what do we, how do we cope with that? We try to make everything in our lives more elaborate. We try to make everything more exciting. And we see this in our culture, weddings, gender reveals, and even how we live. we got to up the ante so that we might be able to feel better about ourselves and somehow get some sort of transcendence in our lives because God is dead. And again, it leaves us feeling inadequate. It's much like the Dundee Awards in The Office. You guys know, I'm sorry if you've never watched The Office but you try to make something elaborate and exciting when it feels so flat. It feels pathetic, right? When you watch them do the dundies to try to make things significant when they're actually not. It's pathetic. It's arbitrary because it's not tied to something that's truly, truly transcendent. You see, this is what we see here. Cleopas and his companion find themselves on a road where God is dead. Jesus has died. And they are left resigned, hopeless, and without any meaning in their lives. They are actually resigned to the fact that meaning was not found in the transcendent because Jesus died. We had hoped Jesus was the one to redeem. But in an amazing turn of events, what happens? This road of hope All of this changes when they realize that Jesus was not dead, but he's alive. And the return to Jerusalem is filled with joy and hope and urgency. Their hearts are now light and their feet can't move fast enough to go back to Jerusalem to tell the other 11 disciples about this good news. What do they say? The Lord has risen indeed. The words that we have echoed back and forth to one another. The same road that they first walked home sad and dejected became a road of joy and hope. God was not dead, but he was alive. God has put death to death. And I know for some of us in this room, the resurrection is actually a roadblock to coming to faith in Jesus. Yes, you might believe in a higher power, but Jesus rising from the dead, I I can't believe that. And I understand I actually get it. But let me just give you one consideration. Eyewitnesses. From the beginning, many people claimed in good faith to be eyewitnesses of of the risen Jesus and eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. And these eyewitnesses were widespread. When you look at these three independent sources that secular historians agree on, that the gospels are independent sources, All of these eyewitnesses all say that they saw Jesus after his death. And no one disputes them, including the empty tomb. Not only was it widespread, but it was actually sincere, their eyewitness. It was done in good faith. They actually believed they saw Jesus resurrected. Now, it doesn't mean it's true. I agree with you. But they really thought that they saw him. And we know this because they never benefited from from this. Rather, they suffered at least four of the disciples died. They were martyred for what they believed. And also it was unexpected. Women were the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And back then, women's testimonies did not carry any weight. And for Christians and Christianity to explode under such false premises would not make any sense. Professor E.P. Sanders, who is a professor at Duke University, he wrote this book, The Historical Figure of Jesus. He is not a believer. He's not one who follows Jesus. But look at what he says as a historian, secular historian. I do not regard deliberate fraud as a worthwhile explanation. Many of the people in these lists of witnesses were to spend the rest of their lives proclaiming that they had seen the risen Lord. And several of them would die for their cause. That Jesus' followers and later Paul had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, a fact. Now here. What the reality, though, was that, gave, was that gave rise to experiences, I do not know. What's, what Professor Sanders is saying is, historically, it is factual. You cannot deny it. Most secular historians, 80% of them, believe that of, of these independent sources that Jesus lived, and including the resurrection, you can't deny it, and you, but they just don't explain it. And that's not a historian's job to explain why. So we have exactly what we need for the evidence of resurrection. An empty tomb, an eyewitness. And what we actually have to consider if you are a person who is other than Christian or seeking is what do you believe about God? And here, Geza Vermes, who's one of the most important voices in contemporary Jesus research and is also described as probably the, the greatest Jesus scholar of his time said this in his book, The Resurrection. And I have it for you here. We have the kind of historical evidence a resurrection would leave behind and more evidence pointing in that direction than we could expect if it were a fraud or a mistake or a legend. But how we interpret that evidence depends not on these historical considerations because they're true. It's a fact. You can't deny what they recorded in these different sources. But on our background beliefs about God and nature. Are you willing to at least consider what do you believe about God and this higher power and if he can actually perform miracles in the midst of our physical universe? And this is where Cleopas and his disciples were. They believed Jesus died. They heard the rumors of the empty tomb. And they were dejected and resigned that God was dead. And there was no transcendence anymore. But what changed for them that they truly believed that he was ri- risen from the dead is these two things that we read here in this story. First, God's word. God's word. Jesus, as he walks with these disciples on the way back home to Emmaus, he opens up God's word, and what does he say? Or what's recorded? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. And as he did this, as he gave the greatest sermon ever in the history of this world, they reflect back on that. In verse 32, they say, weren't our hearts burning as Jesus opened up the scriptures? Their hearts were on fire. And I think so many times, yes, this book, this book is an intellectual endeavor granted but it's not less than that it's more than that that the word of god as we see jesus give us the main idea of what this whole scripture is about it all points to jesus his life his death his resurrection and his return and it all points back to himself this is not just some good moral teaching of a great prophet he's saying this is life-giving it will change you From the inside out. And it reveals to us, as it did to these disciples, that Jesus truly is the risen one. But not just that. We see that it happened at the table. Now, there's argument whether it was the Lord's Supper or just them giving thanks and having table fellowship. Most likely it was table fellowship. But as you hear this, you remember the feeding of the 5,000. You remember the feeding of the 4,000. You remember Jesus in the upper room as he instituted the Lord's Supper. And as we hear this and read this, it reminds us as we come to the table soon that Jesus has risen from the dead. And what's so fascinating and beautiful about these two elements, God's word that is declared in God's word that is visible and tangible for us, those two things point to his resurrection, as it did for Cleopas and this disciple. As C.S. Lewis said, he said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing is, it can't be moderately important. It's either everything is true or none of it is. Now, what does that mean for us then? A few things to take away for us as we reflect on this story one filled with hope and one filled with sorrow. Jesus meets us where we are. I love verse 14. As these two brothers, or you know, brother and a sister are walking home, it records Jesus Himself drew near Jesus himself drew near to these disciples in their sorrow in their grief where you least expect him that is where Jesus is likely to turn up in your life where there is sadness and despair Jesus comes bringing hope and understanding these truths are every bit as relevant for us as it was for Cleopas and the disciple so when you find yourself on the road to Emmaus filled with sorrow a worldview that says God is dead. Don't give up hope, even though it can be long and discouraging. And especially if you know someone who is traveling the road to Emmaus. Walk alongside that person for a while. Do not doubt that the Lord will walk with you as well, no matter who you are, no matter what you are, where you are going and what you've done. But second, we see he we need to make room for Jesus. After Jesus has expounded on God's word that everything points to himself, they reached home after those few hours. They still don't know who Jesus is. And they invite him because their hearts are burning. They want more of this man. And so they invite him into his home and the guest becomes the host. The host is the one that breaks bread. The host is the one that gives thanks. And what do we see here? The guest, this man Jesus, is the one who breaks bread and gives thanks. And their eyes have been lifted. God has revealed to them that this is the Son of God who has risen from the dead. That he has conquered death. Are we willing to make room to experience this kind of life change? Especially if you're other than Christian. Are you willing to make room in your own worldview, in your own theology, in your own comforts to be able to have the guest become the host and disrupt your life? To be able to see, is this Jesus, this historical Jesus, truly God? Are you willing to make room for that? And I believe when you draw near, he will open your eyes to see. I remember my mom, when we were young, she said, all right. I have two younger sisters. All three of you, it's time to clean this whole house on this Saturday from morning till evening. You got to clean this house because we have someone really important coming to our house. And so we did. Because we're like, oh my gosh, who is this? Who is this? Like we thought we'd get tons of presents. And then we sit down at the table and we're like, when is he coming or when is she coming? And they're like, oh, he's here. It's Jesus. And we like rolled our eyes. And and, and (laughs) we did it too to our children. They're not here. And they rolled their eyes just like we did when we were younger. But there's something beautiful about that that I still remember to this day. Are we willing to bring him in, whether you believe him in or not, but to consider, to hear the word, to be instructed, to figure out whether this God is dead or alive. But lastly, we're to walk in community. See, I love how these, these disciples ran back. It was nighttime, they had had dinner they race back as soon as they knew that Jesus was alive and they go back to their community and what do they say they Jesus has risen indeed and if you want to be a follower of Jesus it ha- has to happen in community keeping fellowship with other followers of Jesus walking together as we teach each other scripture As we remember together Christ's great sacrifice for you and for me, as we come to the table and as we observe and remember this Lord's Supper, this meal that Jesus shares with us, we walk together and we're reminded that our future is filled with hope. This church is here to walk with you as well, to help you recognize Jesus and come to believe in his resurrection, to listen to your questions. This church is here to offer hope when you have given up hope. This church is here to be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, so that together we can stay centered on Christ, be sent by Christ, to offer Christ as we together follow Christ. You might know the name Caravaggio. He was a great 16th century Baroque artist. And he was known for his paintings because they were superb with searing emotions expressed in dark shadows that he would use and bright light. Now, Caravaggio was sentenced to death for murder, but he fled from from, uh, Milan to Naples. But what was so amazing about his story is this painting that he captures here in the story that we read. And it's named Supper at Emmaus. And using all the lights and shadows, you see this roasted chicken with grapes and the broken bread. And it captures the moment these two disciples see Jesus as who he is, the risen Savior. One of them is just has an expression of shock and awe that this is Jesus, the Son of God. The other one, his arms are raised, just realizing that this man that we've been walking with is Jesus himself. But what makes this stunning is that there's a fourth man in this picture that's painted. And it's of Caravaggio himself. And you see him gaze at Jesus with such wonder and with such sternness. And what he's portraying is that him being a sinner, him being a murderer, that he can come to this one who is risen. From the dead. You and I can have a similar Easter encounter on this dusty road. We can encounter Jesus in the scriptures that we've read this morning. We can encounter Him in the prayers that we pray, and we can encounter Jesus in the Lord's Supper as we come this morning. Jesus is actually present spiritually in the simple element of the bread and of the wine. By faith, we will be fed spiritually upon the bread of life. And we will spiritually drink his blood as a consecrated wine that will be both sweet and tart on the tongue. We will also be reminded in this supper of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sin. We will all soon experience that great wedding banquet. At the end of the age, when we, along with all the believers throughout all the ages, will partake of the feast of Jesus. And unlike the feast at Emmaus that was way too short, we will feast with him for eternity, our risen Savior, and with one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our risen Savior, that he put death to death. And all that's left for us is to believe and to follow you. Lord, there are some of us here in this room that are filled with resignation and sorrow. Some of us are just tired. But Lord, I pray that we would encounter you. Open up our eyes to see you for who you are so that we might be filled with the hope and joy and excitement that can only come in Christ. Where we know that this world and everything it offers falls so short, it doesn't work. But Lord, you have proven yourself here at the table. So fill us with strength, fill us with joy. But Lord, most importantly, fill us with hope as we look to you, our Savior. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.